0: Hey, everybody.
1: Welcome back to The Local Youth Worker, a podcast you by Reformed Youth Ministries. I'm your host, John Parrott. Uh, This is episode 359. I'm here with Tree. Uh, Tree, how's it going?
2: Always good to be here, John.
1: Yeah, it's good to to see you again. Uh, Tree and I just um, uh, interviewed Dr. Michael Kruger, who will be later in this episode, talking about his book, Surviving Religion 101. Uh, we also have A.J. Swoboda continuing our rested development uh, segment uh, talking about work and, and rest. Uh, Tree, uh, enjoyed the interview with, with Dr. Kruger.
2: Mm-hmm. That was great.
1: And um, as our listeners will uh, get to hear, uh, Tree had Dr. Kruger as a professor. Um, so it's fun to get him to reconnect with a, a professor and even talk about a paper that he graded for you.
2: A, a really bad paper that was submitted <laughs>
1: Yeah so um our, our listeners can can look forward to that uh, later in the episode um I do want to remind people too uh we are putting time stamps On these episodes. So, if you look at um, kind of the info on whatever podcast app you're using, if you want to skip around uh, through the episodes more easily, you can do that. We also have um, some other links that we're putting in there. One of those things that we talked about last week is our 50 for the 50th. Uh, This is, you know, um, 50 top 10 lists that we're working on releasing every Monday. Um, but we've got um, a lot. We've got Top Ten Books on Justification by Greg Meyer, uh, Top Ten Books for Women in Ministry by Ellen Mary Dykus, uh, Tim Challies has written uh, on one, Brett McCracken on movies, Les Newsome. Um, I think this would be a good one for people to check out, especially in light of this episode where we talked to Dr. Michael Kruger. Uh, Les Newsom uh, had Top Ten Ways Youth Workers Can Prepare Their Students for College. Uh, So I would uh, check that out. But there's a whole lot of top 10 lists on a whole uh, just variety of of topics. So I'd encourage people uh, to check those out. Um, So, Tree, this is our essential segment of the podcast, and uh, those who've been listening know we did Essentials of a Youth Room. We are now working on Essentials of a Youth Retreat. Uh, A lot of things have been said. Uh, One thing we have not said explicitly, uh, Tree, that I was sharing with you that I want to say is um, the Bible being an essential of a youth retreat. You know, we would say that about the youth rooms that, hey, um, besides the Bible, what are some essentials of a youth room? But I wanted to be explicit, saying, okay, the Bible is an essential for a youth retreat. Um, RYM was started by three youth workers who were tired of kind of fun and games youth ministries, and they wanted to start a conference centered on the preaching and teaching of the Word. And so that's kind of the foundation for all of what RYM does, but um, that was definitely the foundation of any kind of speaker I was, you know, wanting to have it a youth retreat for our our students is to emphasize the Bible tree. What are are your thoughts on that? Are you, are you for the Bible? Do you like the Bible? Was that
2: really pro Bible?
1: (laughs) Um, What what are thoughts on uh, kind of the Bible being an essential of a youth retreat?
2: Yeah. uh, You know, there's, there's nothing better for it to be centered around. Uh, We've, I think one of the struggles of students nowadays is they're just not all that familiar with their own Bibles and, I think the more we can engage them with that, the better. Uh, I think even the way that we plan like topics of things we're speaking on, sometimes it can be, and and topical stuff isn't bad. I mean, I think, I think there's always a time and a place for that. And I think retreats are a great time for that, but sometimes topical studies can just be fluff and, and can be just, here's some, some nice things to say about this topic. Uh, but if we're actively engaging with the scriptures and with the Bible and showing students what the Bible says about these things, I think that is crucial and so good. And uh, I think we need to be putting that forth to our students, um, both indirectly, just through you know how we teach, but also very directly, saying this is the Word of God and this is what it says about this. Mm-hmm. And I think part of that, uh, the the way that we do that is also you know, partially, not fully, because the Holy Spirit is is the one that brings about change. But I think the speaker is also pretty important as well. I mean, because you can bring in an incredibly gifted and smart person to teach at a youth retreat, and it'll just go straight over their heads. Uh, I think you've got to find somebody that knows how to speak to that particular audience. Not that that's the end-all be-all. I think the Lord can work through anybody. But I do think that having somebody who the students can connect with um, and hopefully not just remember the funny stories that they tell, um, but also the, the content that they're teaching. Uh, I think it, it it definitely aids and helps our students uh, understand the Bible uh, when the, the speaker, when, when it's obvious that it's important to the speaker and they get excited about it. Not that not that smart people don't get excited about the Bible. Mm-hmm. They do. Um, but personality-wise, I think if we, if we bring in speakers that we know can engage with 13-year-olds, right? Uh, I think that's hugely important.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, no, I agree. I mean, the, the personality of the person uh, bringing the the Word of God does, does matter, and uh, there are definitely those who are gifted in a unique way that can resonate with students. Um, and like you said, not just make it kind of fluff or, you know, a stand-up comedy hour, uh, but a way in which you can, you know, use humor appropriately and use stories and illustrations appropriately to uh, point to uh, God's Word, Um, you know, but one more thing as we're talking about God's Word is is having devotion time on uh, retreats was was always important as well, and so um, that was something that you know, we would schedule, I cannot remember if it was, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, but some time on, on youth retreats to where every student was alone with God's word. And um, just that, you know, um, time to, to be alone, to not have their phone with them and to, to be away, I think, was important because it's it's so rare. Um Uh, So, Tree, look, thanks for for helping share a little bit on this. Um, A.J. Swoboda will be with us next. Um, I did want to say, too, uh, Dr. Michael Kruger, uh, just to let people know a little bit about him. Uh, He is the president at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he's written this excellent book entitled Surviving Religion 101 that Tree, Lynn, and I got to discuss a few episodes ago, and his wife, Melissa, was with us last week. So just to give a little bit more information about him, but he will be with us later in the podcast uh, for now. Here is AJ Swoboda. All right, we are back with AJ Swoboda. If you missed last week, I'd encourage you to go tune back in, listen as we talked about uh, rest. And as we've said, uh, rest and work are are two sides of the same coin. I always mess up that phrase, but I think I got it right that time. Uh, But uh Uh, Today, we're going to focus on work a little bit more. And again, we know our our rest and our work go together. And we know, as you say in your book, as we see clearly in Genesis, God created work. He created it as a good thing. Um, But I'd love for us to think about how, how, you know, did it become a bad thing? And when did it start becoming a bad thing? And and I'd love to, again, quote you once again uh, in your book, Subversive Sabbath. Um, And you are quoting someone else here. Uh, You say, achievement is the alcohol of our time. Work is our drug, our numbing agent, a escape hatch, and anesthetizing behavior. Achievement makes us feel the the semblance of some glow of heightened, idolized identity, um, where we are where we are what we do. In this modern world, we have become addicts to doing, making, producing, and accomplishing. Um, I'd love for us. I mean, that's an excellent quote. But I'd love for you to just talk a little bit about how we started to make work such a bad thing and correcting our thinking on it.
3: Yeah, awesome. Great question. Uh work is good. Um God made it. Um we were made to rule and reign in the garden. We we're called co-workers with Christ. We are called We are called to work with God. And that calling uh still to this day is as good now as it was in the garden of Eden. Um, But there does come a point when our work becomes an idol. And I love the way you said, at what point does it go from good to being something that we worship? And by the way, an idol is not always us worshiping something bad. Sometimes it's us worshiping something good. We often think of false worship as worshiping bad things, but sometimes false worship is worshiping really, really good things. We can do it to sex. We can do it to work. We can do it to our identity. We can do it to a whole variety of things, but you know, what we do need to say is work is not to blame for our addiction um, in the same way. C.S. Lewis says that wine is not to blame for the alcoholic. The alcoholic um, is to blame for um, the the constant decision or whatnot to 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 give oneself over to the thing. Um, and, and in the words of C.S. Lewis. Um, The abuse of something never nullifies its original use. And his idea is just because we abuse work doesn't mean work is bad. It means that we abuse work. Work is good. The problem with workaholism is it's a really unique kind of addiction. Um, Unlike other addictions. So I write about this in my book, A Glorious Dark. Uh, I went through a season of struggling with alcohol uh, when I was in my early pastoral years of ministry. Um I did not have an emotional infrastructure to deal with the difficulties of pastoral work. I didn't know how to do it. and so for me, the way that I dealt with it was a couple glasses of wine after work and I didn't feel anymore and i got and I slept really well. and unfortunately, that pattern became uh, almost a needed pattern. and by God's grace on Good Friday uh ten years ago, I woke up to it and i've been I've been clean since but when you, when you, for an alcoholic, and I, mean, I wasn't an alcoholic, but for an alcoholic, the way that you deal with alcoholism is you stop drinking. But the problem with workaholism is the way you deal with workaholism is you can't stop working. Hmm. You just have to re-enter into right r- relationship with work. Some things we end by cutting off. Some things we end by developing boundaries. And that's why workaholism is really hard because for many of us who are work- workaholics, you can't just stop working. You've got to eat. And so you, it, it requires a change of heart. It's a different kind of addiction um, that requires boundaries. And that's why the Sabbath is God's healing agent for workaholics. For workaholics, we can't just stop working Many much of the time. We need to have a new boundary and the Sabbath becomes our AA. <laughs> it becomes our way of dealing with the addiction. And we take one day a week, and we stop, and we don't work, and we rest, and we enjoy God's creation and God's life, and we watch a Netflix movie, and we eat pancakes, and we go on walks, and we go out to dinner, and we make love to our spouses, and we play with our kids, and we get in the garden, and we get on a hammock. And what happens in that day is I'm not allowed to do anything that gives me something to be proud of. I'm not allowed to do something that gives me a platform of pride. It is a day in the words of Eugene Peterson the good a good sabbath is a day where nothing notable by way of achievement has been accomplished.
1: Hmm.
3: So it's it's the crucifixion
1: hmm. of
3: accomplishment. Is really what the sabbath is. It's a crucifixion of accomplishment and saying that I have one day a week where I don't achieve anything. Hmm.
1: That sounds awesome, and and Lynn, I I want you to jump in here, um, but I don't want to. It's awesome, but it's really hard. I that's what I was going to say. Because as I as I'm hearing this, I'm thinking, okay, the people out there listening, they're saying, okay, well, look, yeah, you know, this means I can't just take a peek at my email inbox on you know Sunday, whatever day it is when I'm supposed to be off. I can't just you know write that email or, or do something else. I mean, uh, you know, saying this to so many, just it's, it's so foreign and it sounds undoable. And so maybe speak to those a minute who just think this, this is impossible. I can't do it. It is impossible, (laughs) but, but so it it is,
3: (laughs) but, but so, so is a rich man entering the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And, and only, only by God is this possible. It is impossible. We do not, we live in a world that is ruled by, by a spiritual Pharaoh. We live in a world that is ruled by Satan. And right now, God has allowed this world to um, be under a, a dominion of a slave owner. Pharaoh is right now the ruler of this age. And so, how in the world do you find rest in a world that's ruled by a slave owner? And, and by the way, by the way, this is not the only time in history that people who have loved God have figured out that rest is really hard work.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I mean, for example, go, uh, I, I was reading in preparation for writing the, the books of Verse of Sabbath, I was reading about how the Jews in World War II, how do you practice a Sabbath in a concentration camp? Hmm. How do you practice a Sabbath when the Nazis figured out that the best way to disrupt the Jewish, um, their hope, was to give them all their food on Sundays so that by the following Saturday they were absolutely famished and couldn't rest how do you live in a world that's ruled by by satan at the present moment it's like it's like it's like practicing a sabbath in a concentration camp and and so i actually was reading letters that were written between a concentration camp soldier a nazi and he was writing to his superior And he was saying this, he said this, he said, we have learned that the best way to destroy the hope of the Jews is to destroy their Sabbath. Because if you can destroy their Sabbath, then you destroy their hope. And he says, he has this line in there where he goes, because every time they take a day of rest, it's like they get their spirits back. What's my point? Um, If you think resting is going to be something you do without the forces of hell fighting against you, you're ignorant. There is no day in the New Testament where there is more spiritual warfare, where Jesus faces more demons than on Saturdays, on the Sabbath. there's a reason. Satan absolutely hates it when people of God rest. And that is the distinguishing mark between Satan and God in the Bible. And it's ironic. It's a distinguishing mark, not the only one. And the difference is, ironically, in the Bible, God knows how to rest, but Satan doesn't. Wow.
1: This
0: is so interesting, AJ. Um, I... I also just can't imagine what that must be like to enter into that conversation between that that soldier and then his superior, right? Almost kind of like reading C.S. Lewis's uh the Screwtape table, right? Like, oh my gosh, this is wild, like a whole different mentality, right? Um, and I was thinking about, well, why am I why are we so bad at this? Why can't we get better at this if we realize how good it is for our souls? Like ever since I've been I have been more diligent about practicing Sabbath, I've I just my soul has felt so full, even in my Lack of um, well, what do I have to show for it? <laughs> well, my soul feels really good. That's what I have to show for it. Um, and just thinking in to encourage our friends who are listening to this, right? Like, for us, sometimes it can see it can feel like, well, if I can't practice it perfectly, then I'm like I'm a failure every time. Yep. Right. But to celebrate the victories of, okay, actually I turned my phone off for three hours today, or I didn't check my cell yes. phone while I was doing my quiet time. Like celebrating those little victories has really pushed me on to do more and more. Cause when I think about like, well, today I actually did something productive. I did laundry. That's not a full Sabbath. Ugh, like I, yes. rah, you know, again, here we are. Um, but instead celebrating like, okay, Lynn, like you, you put it in your schedule. You tried really hard not to move your car for 12 hours, like something like that. That's what what it had to be for me as a young single in my area it was just like, well, I don't want to Sabbath because I want to go out and do and, and be all these places and do all these fun things. And so for me, it was Lynn, just try not to move your car for 12 hours. Like, if mm. you, like that's a good way for you to Sabbath and um, yeah, do other things. So for me, it's the well, finding the little victories in one step, being one step better at it instead yes. of throwing out the whole thing, well, I can't do it perfectly. So I'm just not going to try it all.
3: Yeah. My Lynn, you what we what you just said should be the podcast. You can take everything I've said <laughs> out and just think the podcast. What, what you just said. So okay, my number one, my number one critique of the Sabbath. When I say critique of the Sabbath, I don't mean God's Sabbath. My number one beef with this conversation is this question. Is the Sabbath simply a mark of privilege? Hmm. Meaning, is it simply something people that have enough money get to do and the poor don't get to do? Oh, yeah. And here's why, here's the answer to the question the answer to the question is the poor and the underprivileged do not rest because the powerful and the rich do not. And essentially, what happens is because the powerful don't, that it's never extended, which is why. I mean, I have all sorts of political feelings about things like Chick-fil-A and Hobby Lobby and stuff that don't matter here, but they lose billions of dollars to shut down one day a week so that people can go home and be with their families. Yeah. And and I got to say, kudos to them for their willingness to actually harm the bottom line in order to serve the true bottom line, which is the souls and the families of people. And the true bottom line in the kingdom is never economic. The soul matters. To God. You can't write a New York Times argument about a day of rest. There's nothing special about it in a worldly term. But in God's kingdom, it is the triple bottom line that you are a person who found your identity and your rest in God, and God celebrates it. And He writes articles to all the angels about a person who has rested. There's no celebration. I mean, I can tell you, my wife uh, is a stay at home mom, and nobody right now in our culture is celebrating stay-at-home moms Mm -hmm. and she spends her life doing something that the world does not value but god does Mm -hmm. and that is what the sabbath is it is celebrating something that the world couldn't care less about but god is enamored with and loves with all of his heart Mm
1: Uh, amen. Um, I thought about asking a follow-up, but that is a great place to stop. That's that's excellent. Um, AJ, appreciate your words. Looking forward to continuing this conversation next week with you. Dr. Kruger, welcome to the podcast.
4: Well, thanks, guys. Great to be with you.
1: It's good to have you. Uh, looking forward to talking about your book, uh, Surviving Religion 101, uh, Letters to a Christian Student on Keeping the Faith in College. Um, before we do that, just, just curious, I'm sure you at RTS just had graduations, I'm assuming. Um, are you gearing up for graduation, or are you through with that? Are you teaching summer classes this summer?
4: Yeah, so right now the students actually literally today is the last day of final exams. So okay. the 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 weeping and gnashing of teeth is going to uh <laughs> die down after today. Um and then on Friday we have our graduation on uh, Friday morning. So yeah, it's a busy time of the year and we're excited about sending the next class out to what God has for them next.
1: Excellent. Yeah, uh, looking forward to, to jumping in, talking about this the book a little bit. I should tell our listeners as well, Tree Triello is joining us um, as well. And those who tune into the podcast know that Dr. Crew, your wife uh, Melissa, was on last week as well. She was talking about a forthcoming book she has through the Gospel Coalition, "Social Sanity in an Insta World." Uh, we want to tell our listeners to be sure to go get that book. Um, But something she said that I thought maybe this could be um, our segue into talking about your book in this subject, Uh, she was talking about the importance of family dinners and just talking about having conversations around the table. And and I'd love for you maybe just to, uh, again, this is somewhat tangential but related, talk to us about the importance of family dinners and then maybe how it's related to this whole um, conversation we're, we're having about apologetics in the home maybe.
4: Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's more relevant than maybe your listeners even know. I mean, my book is obviously written for college students, helping them survive life at a secular university um, or any university for that matter. Um, But I get a lot of interaction with parents over that book. And they're always saying things like, well, you know, I don't want to wait till my kid's gone to start thinking about this. You know, how do I talk about this earlier? And uh, I think Melissa's comments is spot on there is that one small, tangible, practical thing parents can do is really find time to sit down with their kids for regular meals, where there can be dialogue. And I think that's the key word is dialogue. Kids get told a lot of things and they learn a lot of things. They hear a lot of talks and sermons and speeches, and, and there's appropriate place for all those things. They need to get that download of information, but they rarely have a chance to sort of talk and dialogue and certainly probably not very often even with their own parents. And I think you'll find that when you have those conversations, stuff starts to come out. And suddenly you realize, oh wait, this this is on my child's mind, I never even knew about it. Maybe they have questions they never shared before. So those conversation points are, are, are a key place for parents to really probe into what, they're, what their children are struggling with.
1: Yeah, that's, yeah, uh, so true. Um, I know so many times as I'm talking with my children, like you said, something will just kind of come up to the surface and think, okay, wow, I never even thought that was on their heart, that was on their mind. And so, yeah, it's vitally important to have those um, conversations. Uh. Tree, look, I want you to jump in, but before we do that, um, you share at the beginning of your book uh, that this is kind of the first lay-level book uh, that you wrote, and you, <laughs> you were joking pre-recording, oh, well, people can actually, <laughs> you know, buy a popular-level book because so much of what you have written is, is academic. Um, I'd love for you just to kind of share what, what were some of the challenges of transitioning from, you know, more of an academic-style ty- book to this kind of lay-level volume?
4: Yeah, well, you know, you have to keep your audience in mind, Um, you know, for, for my other books, they tend to be scholarly audiences, or probably, you know, seminary students, or people who are interested in thinking deeply about certain theological or historical questions, whereas this book is not for that at all. It's not even for anyone necessarily thinking about going to seminary, and it's certainly at a younger age, too, mainly before most of them finish their collegiate years. So I had to have that in the back of my mind, Um, but you know what, what really helped was, was that I framed the book as some of the readers might know around letters to my daughter, Emma, who is currently at UNC Chapel Hill. And as soon as I framed each chapter as a letter to her, that was really the, the thing that clicked everything in place because then I just started talking like a dad to my daughter. And once you're starting to do that, it's not really so much lay versus scholarly, although that's part of it, but it's really just you know uh a father talking to his daughter about what she needs to think about in the next phase of her life and, there, and then it just flowed more naturally at that point i was just thinking about talking to her and so yeah it was a four-way 4 a for me into a new area but it was really a lot of fun to write i enjoyed it. it you know one thing that on a humorous level i enjoyed not doing is having so many footnotes i mean for crying out loud it's <laughs> been half my time on footnotes and i finally got to write a book with having to worry about all these footnotes. And so I was like, wow, this is actually a lot easier. I should write more of these.
1: <laughs> yeah, just encouragement. Yeah, you absolutely should write more of these because this is a great book. And um, as I was, again, sharing pre-recording, um, it was very popular at our summer conferences, uh, just going off the, the book tables, uh, people picking it up. So, um, yeah, very much appreciate it. Tree, I'd, I'd love for you to jump in.
2: Yeah. Uh, just, I, I wanted to read something that's on page 34, because this was actually super helpful for, for me as I'm reading this book, and as well as just students and parents reading this book as well. Uh, you're talking about how you know, the the students, when they get onto a college campus, they're just gonna be bombarded with just everything, like nonstop. Uh, and your encouragement to Emma here is, and, and this is what you, you write here, let this be true of you, Emma, let these questions drive you to pursue the answers. Be a reader, be a studier, be someone who dives into the deep issues of your faith. And here's the payoff, not only will that bless your own soul but it will bless many, many other people as you help them work through challenging intellectual issues, Issues. you'll become a resource for others. I, I would love to hear you just kind of unpack that a little bit because I think a lot of times we just want to show up and we want to have all the right answers. We want to be able to challenge that professor. We want to you know, have all, all the the details and and the historical context to, to approach every single thing, but that's just not, not real. That's not, that's not something that we can expect from everybody. Right. I mean, we, we can't expect everyone to have all the right answers, but how can we, uh, prepare our students? How can parents prepare their students to at least begin to think about how they think about certain topics as opposed to feeling like they always have to have the right answer.
4: Yeah, I mean, I, I try to talk uh, the reader off the ledge, so to speak, at the very beginning of the book by saying, "Hey, give yourself a break. You're going to have a lot of scenarios where you don't have an answer. You're going to get in a lot of positions where you sort of quote lose the argument." Mm-hmm. Um, some people think if you lose an exchange, whatever that means, um, and you know, if you if you if you get stumped so, somehow, the, the whole edifice of Christianity is in doubt. But I think that's really kind of crazy if you think about it. Like, why why is it one 19 year old kid who can't answer a question suddenly makes Christianity in doubt? I mean, that's, why would someone think that? Um, and so one of my repeated lines in the book is also, even if you don't have an answer, don't think that means there's not an answer. Mm-hmm. Um, go out and find the answer. Um, and that actually is part of my own story. I mean, I had to go out and find the answer myself when I was an undergraduate and I realized, oh, wait a second, these aren't new things. These aren't These aren't brand new challenges. Christians have been dealing with this for generations and they've actually given answers to these things. And that itself, can just be really reassuring you know this isn't the this isn't christianity's first rodeo you know um and chances are whatever your professor says is not original um and i just t- i think just telling people that alone can help you get through a big chunk of the problems
1: mm-hmm. yeah and uh, full disclosure i've not been able to finish the book um it's uh, i think chapter 10 is where i am and so you might answer this in the book but you said how you had to kind of start to to dig into some of these questions a little bit more on your own. And you share your professor, Bart Ehrman, uh, was one of those professors that kind of challenged you and, and, and pushed you. And just uh, curious, have you been able to interact with him since this book has come out? Is is he aware that this book is out there? Um, what sort of relationship do you have with him? Just out of curiosity.
4: Yeah. You know, I don't really have that much personal interaction with Bart. I mean, you know, we we interact in print more than anything. He He's not the kind that typically engages with his critics in a direct way certainly you know i don't i wouldn't expect a response or an email or anything like that um he gets a lot of criticism and and he's usually sort of stays out of the fray of it all um so yeah i don't think there's really a lot of personal interaction there and I, and i didn't write the book to get such personal interaction sure. um you know the, the point of the story wasn't so much that he and i should interact although i'd always be open to interacting with him um actually really happen to 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 like the guy i think he's a really enjoyable fellow and seems like he would be a lot of fun to to talk to, but um, but but I wrote it mainly just for the students to know. Hey, you're not alone. I've been there, and that was the the, the main reason for for bringing up that personal story.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and something you share at the beginning is just the concern of the church. I think, as you put it, being sleep, asleep intellectually. Um, And and one of the things you you say in your book, you say we need to do more than prepare students morally and practically. We need to train their minds to engage engage effectively with an unbelieving world. Um, I'd love for you to talk just a little bit more about that, of just kind of your concern for the church um, and how we're raising seemingly a generation um, who may be asleep intellectually
4: yeah this has been on my mind for a while and it's been curious the response to the book has been multidimensional. i mean obviously i wrote it for students who already have gotten to college but one of the most common discussion points as i indicated in an earlier part of our of our of our talk here is that parents have been coming out of the woodwork saying hey what can i do before they leave to try to get them ready and so i think there's this general sense that the church has not done a good job um, helping people be intellectually prepared. I certainly wasn't, and, and I don't think my situation was an isolated one. I think most kids get sent out from American evangelicalism with more of a moralistic framework for what to do in college and not so much a, a, a theological and worldview framework. So, you know, there's lots of solutions to that. I mean, we could talk about a lot of different ways to address it. What One thought though that I've brought up is I think there is in some churches, not, not every church, but in but in some churches a little bit of a, a protectionistic bubble mentality for the way we deal with our children. Um, my analogy is it's it's not that different than the parent who's super germ conscious and follows their kid around every day with hand sanitizer and make sure they wash their hands 37 times and doesn't ever want them to get sick. And then, you know, by the time the kid graduates high school, they're they're patting themselves on the back saying, well, you know, after 18 years with little Johnny at home, he's never been sick. And I'm like, yeah, but then the kid goes out to college and gets really sick and he's in the ER because his his immune system never got kickstarted when he was young, because he mm-hmm. never got any, you know, germs when he was little that is the analogy of what's happening spiritually. We put our kids in this little hermeneutically sealed world, never let them hear anything that's contradictory to the faith, never hear any challenges. And then we think we've done our job as parents. I'm like, uh, no, what we've done is we've kept little Johnny's spiritual immune system from kickstarting. And so now he's gonna go to college and he's gonna be completely uh, hammered by some virus. And so we need to do a better job of introducing uh, challenging thinking to our students at younger years. Um, I used to play a game with my kids around the dinner table, ironically, since we brought that up earlier, where I, I would play the skeptic and I would let them answer my questions as a skeptic. So I would pepper them with challenges and questions and, and push back on what they believe. And this was really a fun exercise. And I, and I would I would back them into a corner pretty quickly. Right. Because obviously I deal a lot with these things, but but it made them think about why they do believe what they believe. And I think we need a little bit of more of that in the, in the church today.
1: Hmm. I would love to, and, and Tree, I want you to jump in too. But I'd love to dig into this just a little bit more. I mean, we we have on this podcast uh, talked about the coddling of the American mind by Jonathan Hyde and Greg Lukianoff a lot, and it seems like so much of what you're saying um, is just protecting, you know, um, our children from he- hearing what what the world is, um, uh, you know, pushing back on about Christianity. Um, uh, what are some, I mean, you already gave the example of, of talking at your, your dinner table, um, but but I guess maybe some of the fear, what, what do you think some of the fear maybe originates from from parents just not wanting to, you know, introduce a, you know, a cultural issue taking place? I mean, I think of all sorts of sexuality issues that are going on in our culture and parents being um, so terrified of those. I guess just talk about that a little bit more for us.
4: Yeah, well, I think one thing that parents are scared of is they know they don't have all the answers and they they also are under the misunderstanding that if they don't have all the answers they can't help um and so they get paralyzed too just like everybody else and of course just like i tell the college student you don't have to have all the answers i would tell the parents you don't have to have all the answers in order to be effective in helping your kids uh work through this the, the other thing i'd mention and i do cover this in chapter my last chapter of the book which i know you said you're in chapter 10 but chapter 15 is a chapter on on the role of doubt in the christian life and i do not think we've carved out a space in the church for people to express their doubts and questions um some churches don't allow it at all and they'll shut you down other churches sort of tolerate it as if it's this irritant and just happy to be all the all the, the more quickly rid of um what i would encourage churches to do is actually create safe spaces in the congregation where students could come and actually get on the table hey i don't know if i like that i don't know if i agree with that i don't i don't know if that makes sense to me and let's just have an open conversation about it without them feeling sort of shamed for for having these questions, and I and I think there's ways churches can do that, but we just need to we need to do better there.
2: Yeah, uh, so I think you share this either in the introduction or in one of the the early chapters. But you're you're essentially laying it out like this book is not going to be a guarantee of you surviving, you know, with with your faith intact. Uh, but this is a, a great resource that I think a lot of our churches need and. I'm, I'm, I'm excited because I'm passing this out to all of our, our outgoing seniors. I wish I would have gotten it to them at the beginning of the year, as opposed to now. Mm-hmm. Uh, but how can we as youth leaders actually interact with with this book uh, and, and use it as a resource to help teach and, and, and help parents and students?
4: Yeah, I mean, I think this would be an, an excellent thing to do a, a 15-week study in. I mean, you know, there's 15 chapters. Um, you could do a small. I, w- I would encourage. Well, you could do it different ways. You could do a small group study with like a group of eight to ten students, where you could work through each chapter one week at a time in and dialogue. And this is the key. You know, they don't need another lecture. They need to read it and have an opportunity to discuss it. That that that's the key emphasis I would encourage. Now, you could do it a different way. You could you could have a presentation, say on a Wednesday night youth group, where someone recaps the chapter in some sort of talk, and then break into small groups after that and discuss. Okay, you could do it that way too. But the discussion is just 100% key here. Um, if someone just says, well, I'm just going to regurgitate the material in the book and these talks and everyone's going to be fine. Well, you're missing the whole point. Um, the, the students need a chance to process this and, and talk about it and, and even push back. I don't expect everybody who reads my book to agree with it. In fact, that's the whole reason I wrote it is I, I want it to be read by people who don't agree um, and uh, hopefully can, can have a chance to, to think through these things in different ways. So I really think creating that open space for discussion is going to be a, a really important way to use the book. Going forward, so 15 chapters, 15 week study would be a a, a one way to go about it.
1: Yeah, that's helpful. Yeah, you know, know, as you're writing these letters to to your daughter Emma, I mean, you have some of the the scenarios of you know Emma. If you find yourself in this you know scenario or someone bringing up this argument, um, I'd love for you just to speak maybe more generally about okay. Um, advice to students who, okay, if they find themselves in an argument with a peer um, or a, you know, teacher, professor um, over a certain issue, what are kind of the, the knee-jerk responses they need to have? Maybe even from the, the posture of how they begin to respond, not even getting into a specific topic, but but what's just kind of the, here's some beginner steps on kind of engaging someone respectfully as, as a believer.
4: Yeah, there's so many mistakes that, that I remember making uh in my younger years as a college student and I'm sure we all are tempted to make uh our, our current students are tempted to make those same mistakes today I mean one one mistake is to think that that you have to you know engage in every single discussion and every single battle so you know some students have this sort of mentality that that my obligation as a Christian is that every time my professor says something I disagree with I got to raise my hand every time a a fellow student you know says something wrong well then i'm i'm obligated morally to jump into the fray well no you're not um you're, you're not and, and by the way that type of personality that's always sort of just perpetually on the war path is a very unpleasant person to be around anyway and you're actually going to find yourself working against um uh things so that's 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 first step second you know piece of advice is just be ready not to know the answer i mean if some people are paralyzed they think until i get a phd i'm just not going to talk to anybody well no, just have a conversation. I mean, you don't have to, you can just make bring up the issues you do know, try to make a few good points. You may may not have answers to a few things. Once again, just admit that you not knowing the answer doesn't change the truth of Christianity, doesn't put the church of Christ in jeopardy. The world doesn't end because you lost that exchange. So I think everyone has to take a deep, deep breath um and not put so much angst into every interchange. Um, and then the, the third thing I would suggest here, just by way of advice, is focus on macro issues. So, you know, one of the examples I give in the book is the flashpoints around sexuality in our culture today. Everyone wants to know, you know, is this a right thing? Is that a wrong thing? Should you do this, should you not do that? And there's a place certainly to engage in that. But one of the things I encourage students is back up the question one notch, rather than just simply saying, I don't think X act is a a good act or a bad act. Rather than having that conversation, ask your non-Christian friend, how do you know any act is good? Or bad? How do you know anything is right or wrong? What is your ultimate standard for knowing anything about morality? Now what you've done is you've taken the the heat out of the conversation because it's no longer about that controversial issue. And it's just about how you know right and wrong in the first place. And you'll find that that's exactly where we want the conversation. Because we have a really good answer to that question. And you'll find out that most Christians don't, most non-Christians, sorry, don't have a good answer to that question. So I think that's another piece of advice I would give.
1: Yeah, that that's really helpful. Hey, Tree, I saw you about to yeah. jump in.
2: Are we, how do we regain the the ability to have discourse with people? Because obviously our, our culture has shifted quite a bit to where any sort of disagreement equals you don't value me as a person or yeah, if you, if you don't agree with me, then then we'll just cancel you. Like how do we engage or how can we encourage students as well as ourselves to maybe figure out how how do we regain that? like what what, is, what are some good practices for us? as we interact on these topics, uh, either at a broad or, or a narrow level um, with others in a, in a way that communicates to them. Yeah, I, I disagree with you, but I, but I actually do care for you. I love you.
4: Yeah, so this is where whenever you engage the world you're in with truth, you have to understand the world you're in. And mm-hmm. I think, you know, they say this in, in in wars, Every every time you fight a war, you're actually fighting the last war. In other words, whatever tactic you're using in the current war, it's actually just the t- tactic you borrowed from the war 30 years ago. Um, and I think we make that same mistake in the way we intergage with our world today. We we, we engage today still like it's, you know, 1950 um, and that people think in you know, black and white categories and everything sort of modernistic and modernity rules. And you just need to prove people by science that things are true and they believe it. Well, golly, I mean, that's, you know, you could dream of yesteryear, but that's not the battle we're fighting now. People condition truth relationally. Now, you may not like that. Someone may object and say, well, I wish it wasn't that way. Okay, fine. But you just happen to be in the world you're in. And if you want to be honest about the world you're in, we as Christians need to work hard to build relational capital with the people that we we witness to. That doesn't mean we believe that truth is contingent on feelings or relationships. Of course not. Truth is true. Mm-hmm. But we do want to reach their heart. And they are a real person in a real time and place that responds to things because of their conditions world and we want to do the best we can to break through those barriers to reach them and so yes is it going to take extra work to build relational capital of course do we want to work hard to prove we love someone and miss a disagreement we're gonna have to work harder than we ever have you know Mm -hmm. 50 years ago we could have got away without working really hard at that and people just dealt with it today Mm -hmm. we we don't have that luxury you know Mm -hmm. someone might say well golly i wish it was still 50 years ago i'm like well but it's not right (laughs) deal with the world you're in and so it's going to take more effort to show we do love and care for you the other thing i'll say is that. As Christians, we need to we got we've got to recover the ability to get to get uh, attacked ourselves without retaliating. Hmm. Part, part of the problem is people are attacking us and we're just we're just responding in kind. Um, and I know the knee jerk reaction is to do that, but we got to do a better job of just we're going to be gentle, even though you're harsh. We're going to we're going to be patient, even though you're impatient. Until hmm. we get there, we're going to have a really hard time reaching the world we're in. Mm hmm.
1: Yeah, and kind of to that point of, you know, responding to the world that we're in, and I mean, Tree's question, that this conversation, um, I just think of the impact of social media um, on on all of what we're saying, and of course, social media gets brought up a lot on this this podcast, but, um, and I'm even thinking of, you know, teaching students to have engaging conversation about these important matters, but now kind of in the day and age we live in, it seems like we have to start even more basic, just teaching students how to have a conversation because so many are you know on screen so much. And so I'd love for you just to kind of react to that. How has social media kind of nuanced this entire discussion on apologetics and engaging others who don't think like us?
4: Well, like most things, uh, you know, there's good and bad parts to social media. I think we all, all can agree that That even though there's some good parts to it, there's a whole lot of bad, (laughs) Mm -hmm. and um, it it hasn't helped uh, dialogue because it's not dialogue. Social media is you know basically you know you know just a new medium by which you can sort of vent anonymously or at least quasi anonymously. At least you're not in the same room with somebody in ways you would never talk to a person if you're standing face to face with them. And it's really been a hampering issue. And so a lot of kids in the current generation grow up. They don't even know how, like you said, they don't even know how to have a conversation with somebody. So you know surely the church can do a good job trying to recover that this goes back to some of our earlier points which is if kids kids are on social media all the time they need some place to learn how to dialogue and the church you know is there's there, there don't misunderstand there is a proper place for one directional preaching on a sunday morning right that's designed to be one directional but outside of that we have very little dialogue even in the church how wh- how have we gotten there i mean that the church ought to be a place where people learn to talk to somebody and have a dialogue and honestly a disagreement in a, in a, in a right way so that when they leave, they, they know how to do that. Um, so I, I think it's naive to think we're just gonna ban social media and 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 there's all these you know bold moves like, well, let's restrict this and restrict that. I'm not saying there's not a place for, for, for being careful about how much you're on it, but I think rather than look at all negatively, how do I stop it? I think we need to supplement the lives of the people that we care for with good opportunities for face-to-face dialogue, so that they know how to talk and talk graciously and kindly uh, to people, and uh, that's gonna that's gonna take some work.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and yeah, cannot overemphasize enough. Your, I mean, your point that uh, social media is not conversation—that's just kind of yeah, lobbing uh, truth grenades, as I've heard someone else say. it At people at times that are just kind of stirring the pot. So, um, good words though, Tree. Tri- I'd love for you to jump in again as well.
2: Yeah, I have, can I switch gears for a second? Because I have a Please very do. good question. Uh, so, chapter 13. Uh, my professor says the books were left out of our Bibles. Can we be sure we have the right ones? Uh, I'll, I'll be honest. This chapter brought a little bit of PTSD up for me because uh, my my gospels paper from seminary will probably go down as one of the worst papers ever written at RTS Charlotte.
4: <laughs> oh, I doubt that.
2: And, uh, you, you had some wonderful things to say at the time. Did I now? Well, I'd be embarrassed probably to know what I wrote on your paper. So uh, sorry. It was it was it was just it was still warm as I turned it in. Um, but my question uh, revolves. I, I'm just uh, maybe I'm just ignorant to. How things work on college campuses. When it when it comes to those other go- gospels, I'll put that in quotations for because our listeners can't see me say it or hear me see me do that. How often do religious departments at universities interact with those types of materials? I mean, you mentioned the Gospel of Thomas quite a bit. And it's a strange, strange book as as I've read it. Um, but how often do religious departments try to engage with those materials and and how do they, I mean, do they use those as, as to say, these, we should be reading those too? Or do they use them to say, well, we'll see you have all these other things. How, how can you believe that the Bible's true? Maybe you can just help 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 uh, unpack that a little bit.
4: Yeah, so one of the things I try to do in the book is, is look at the kind of range of different challenges. And mm-hmm. so some are more emotional, some are more relational, some are more moral and ethical. Well, in the chapters you're handing out, I get into more historical challenges. Mm-hmm. And those aren't the only kind of challenges on a college campus, but they are still there. Um, You talk to anybody who takes a mainstream university religion class today, uh, whether Old Testament or New Testament, it's going to get into issues of canon, issues of why these books and not others. Uh, What about forgeries? What about lost books? I mean, it is still the rage. Um, I get so many emails and comments and questions, especially when I go and speak at churches about these things that people are like, yeah, I'm still getting this. I'm still hearing about it. I'm still reading it. Um, and the and the religion professors are gonna feed you the line that hey, you know, all gospels are the same, that none are any better than any others. Pick the one you like, gospel Thomas is just as good as Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So, yeah, that chapter was designed to hit back against some of those claims, which I think we've got really good evidence on our side for why those claims don't hold up. So, yeah, that's just one of many things a student's gonna get, but I really think that topic is not going away. Obviously, it happens to be a topic I've written on uh, a, a bunch in other places, and as you recall. Uh, even taught about in my gospels class um but it's one of those issues that is so prevalent i felt like it w- was worthy of a section in the book and um and of course i think the reader knows that the book's not exhaustive right no one thinks that when you go to college you get 15 questions only um surely i could write you know three or four more volumes with more more questions but but in the greatest hits that's got to be one of them
1: um, I'd love to j- jump back and talk uh, to the youth workers a second. I know we, we've um, talked about, it. I mean, even using this book as, you know, a large group study, a small group study. I mean, I could easily see it going through um, this book with students, but, you know, as we say on this podcast a lot, youth ministry isn't just ministry to youth. It's, it's ministry to parents, that youth workers uh, really need to be partnering with the parents in this. And so maybe just some advice on, um, and, and going back to your, your challenge on the, the church kind of being intellectually asleep. But what are some words you'd love to give to youth workers to kind of push and challenge students more kind of intellectually, as well as maybe even uh, challenging the parents a little bit in, in the home to do that?
4: Well, you know, part of writing a book for a, a, a special demographic is you always hope it doesn't get limited to that. And one of the things that, that that I've said repeatedly on podcasts I've done about this book is that these are questions that college students ask, but they're honestly questions we all ask. And so just about anybody could read the book, whether you're 18 or 80, um, and really, I think, benefit from reflecting on these questions. And so when you think about youth ministry, obviously, the whole point here is get this in the hand of students before they go off to college and work through these issues with them. Great. But I've encouraged parents to read the book and I've encouraged the parents to read the book with their children. So they're reading it together, uh, moms and dads and uh, their children before they go off to college. And I would encourage youth groups then and youth pastors to see this as a joint operation. Yeah, you're doing it with the kid that youth group, but also I would connect with the parents, ask them to get a copy, ask them to read it too. And then you've got a three-way conversation going. It's you as the youth worker and the student and the parents in three different dimensions there. And maybe even have a session with the parents in the room. Or here's another idea, maybe even have a session just for parents. So have them read the book, come in and meet with the youth leader. And it's the kids aren't in there, it's just the parents and the youth leader. And you work through how to engage this material with your children um, or with your youth, probably a better way to say it. And uh, I just think that would be pretty incredible what that could produce. And it, it, that that kind of stuff is just not happening in churches. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's not that hard, but I think you'd find parents really engage with this material because they have the same questions everybody else does.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, I like that idea a lot. I mean, I, I know uh, thinking as a youth worker that there were times where, you know you, you try to balance of i don't want to tell the parents what to do and uh, overstep into their role and responsibility so it was always helpful to either you know bring somebody in to talk about a certain topic or to be able to work through a book together and say hey here, here's what somebody else is saying um I think that would be yeah, and great approach. I, I
4: think some parents do get defensive there's no doubt that happens but I think a lot of parents just don't know what they're what they're they're supposed to do honestly um and so if they're given an invitation, to have a dialogue with their teenager that the church is facilitating and setting up, I think you'll find that a lot of parents are going to jump all over that. Um, they are just going to be really glad to do it. So um, there may be a few parents that to give you the "stay out of my business" line, but I think ninety percent are going to be like, "Yeah, wh- wh- when is it and when do I come?" Because I want to do that uh, with my with my child.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, th- I think you're you're totally right. Um, there's so much more I-, I want us to talk about, but I know we're we're getting close to time. Um, I've got to ask, is there going to be a surviving religion 201? And, um, <laughs> you know, kind of along with that, were there other questions you just felt like you did not have the time to get to? I mean, of course, there's there's plenty more that could be discussed.
4: Yeah, I've already been thinking about that. As soon as the, the thing kind of, you know, uh, hit the shelves... I already knew it was sort of all already limited and to some extent, even out of date. Um, I mean, the, 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 the cultural conversations are changing so quickly yes. that I realized when the book came out, one of the, one of the big cultural conversations about happening when the book came out was transgender stuff. And if you know, I don't ever even mention that in the book, mm-hmm. which now, cause yeah, you know, I wrote it, the book came out obviously in, in, uh, uh, you know, 2021, but I wrote it starting in sort of 2019. So by the time, you know it gets out there that conversation is happening and i don't have time to update it but i realized wow I, f- I feel like I've, i i should have said something about that and there's many other issues like that i know that i could go back and address so yeah you know maybe there's a 201 uh, down the road and it could be a two volume set um we'll see but I, i'm excited for the reception of it and um even if there's never a 201 i think these are the core mm-hmm. questions and maybe there's be an updated version of it too So it could be an expanded and an updated version so it's the same topics but just developed
1: Sure. Well, well, I know Tree and I would definitely be um, some advocates to push you to write a, a 201. Um, but again, just reiterating to all of our listeners, I mean, th- this is a must-own book. Um, like you said, I mean, thinking of reading this along with your own children, youth workers using this for small group studies, um, you, you cover so much. And like you say, these are kind of the, the foundational questions that we'll wrestle with. Um, Dr. Kruger, I, I know you've got a blog, Canon Fodder. Is there um, any other place places you'd love to to point people to kind of keep up with some of the work that you're you're doing?
4: Well, you know, that really is the best place. So uh it's Michaeljakruger.com, but the but the title of the blog as you indicated is Canon Fodder. And there I, I write on things other than Canon, but I have a bunch of my videos, talks, lectures, links to my books and articles. So you know if someone wants to go deeper into some of the questions that I cover uh in surviving religion 101 or or other uh key apologetics questions, that would be a good place to go. And, and, you know, I I point people to other sources uh, as well. So hopefully it'll be a helpful site for folks.
1: Great. Well, Dr. Kruger, I know you, you get pulled in a lot of different directions and you've got a lot going on. So we really appreciate you taking the time to come on today.
4: Thanks, guys. Enjoyed the conversation. Oh,
0: come and buy without money.
1: Oh, come and feast without pay.